You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. There are times when, as the daughter of Italian-Canadian immigrants, certain assumptions are made about me, about my interests and proclivities, and also about my person and my work ethic. I must like pasta because I'm Italian. In fact, I hardly ever touch the stuff. I must work hard because I'm trying to prove myself as the child of immigrant parents. That may be true, it's possible, I suppose. But it also insidiously and fundamentally undermines my accomplishment in saying so. Would we say that about those who are not recent immigrants? How would we define or explain their accomplishment? Wouldn't we just accept it as that, as an accomplishment, without qualifying it? Or how about this one? I would make a good wife and mother because, you know, aren't Italian women generally great at being wives and mothers? Here I almost audibly snort or scoff. I've adopted neither of those roles. And yet, these are some of the more innocuous versions of the attitudes by which I've been approached. But we must be careful not to see them as entirely innocent. They're not. By this I mean that they are often part of a larger set of assumptions that are racially driven or sometimes conceal larger narratives of injustice. And these are the kinds of assumptions that can lead to greater divisive practices and even violences that erupt as the assumptions take greater shape and have more serious consequences. Take, for example, the Christie Pitts riot. For those of you who may not know, this is an area in Toronto, that is, an area called Christie Pitts, which was the context for a riot that erupted on August 16, 1933, in the final innings of a baseball game that involved the Jewish and Italian-Canadian immigrant communities. Yes, both communities were on the outs in Canada in that period, but they played ball, literally and figuratively, together. Anglo-Saxon communities were already expressing open hostility toward both communities, but especially Jewish Canadians who were using the beaches to swim. Again, the beaches are another area, swimming area, in Toronto, but which the Anglo communities considered a violation of their space. Some of the locals, therefore, formed a swastika club. Yes, that's right. That happened right here in Canada, and members of the club descended on the baseball game on August 16th, inflicting significant injuries as a result. Canadians like to think that, for example, anti-Semitism did not occur in this country. That's a great myth. Quite the opposite in some instances. The riot has been since depicted in two graphic novels, Christy Pitts by Jamie Michaels and illustrated by Doug Fedro in 2019, and The Good Fight by Ted Staunton, and Josh Rosen in 2021. I've provided links in my show notes to both of these texts. 
Just after the Christie Pitts riot, the moment when Hitler was rising to power, there was a counter-response in Canada. It's hard to imagine how events abroad can affect one's own country, but often they play out like a set of dominoes, one block tumbling over another and flattening the next one after that, and so on. So the Jewish-Canadian community was aware of and connected to what was beginning to happen in Germany. But it isn't as if Canada defended the Jewish-Canadian community, as the Christie Pitts incident makes abundantly clear. They also weren't the only ones to have suffered at the hands of such open and flagrant racism. During the Second World War, members of several communities, Japanese Canadians, German Canadians, Italian Canadians, Jewish Canadians, among others, were relocated to internment camps after their property had been confiscated. It was a function of the fact that in 1939, the Federal War Measures Act was invoked. This is an act that allows the government in Canada to arrest and detain people without trials or even laying any charges, to censor indiscriminately, and to seize property. The focus of today's episode, however, is one community in particular, the internment and deportation of Japanese Canadians during the Second World War and its broad representation in some of the work of literature in Canada. What you need to know about the Japanese-Canadian community is that many of its members were involved in the fishing industry on the west coast of Canada and in the Canadian Pacific Railway. So approximately 1,200 of their fishing boats were seized, and all other Japanese-Canadian employees for the CPR, that is the Canadian Pacific Railway, were fired following the attack of Pearl Harbor in December 1941. They were subject to a curfew until, by 1942, they were forcibly relocated from their homes to internment camps. Why? Because, although many had lived in Canada for generations, they were characterized as a threat. Not that they actually were a threat. Oh, no. Racist assumptions about the community, however, permitted this course of action against it. There are other works, novels and memoirs, such as The Ash Garden by Dennis Bach, published in 2001 by HarperCollins, or Takeo Nakano's Within the Barbed Wire, a Japanese man's account of his internment in Canada, published in 1980 by the University of Washington Press. But it's worth knowing, as I hope to make evident by the books considered in today's episode, that there's a substantial body of literary work on this subject to shed light on a part of history in Canada and the assumptions it made, politically and culturally, about Japanese Canadians in mid-century Canada. One of the first books, considered a kind of watershed novel to address this historical situation, was the award-winning novel Obasan by Joy Kagawa. Now published by Random House, it was initially published in 1981 by Lester and Orpen Dennis. Based on Kogawa's own personal experiences, the book traces the evacuation, relocation, and dispersal of Canadian citizens of Japanese ancestry during the Second World War. Naomi Nakane is the main character, a schoolteacher, who's returned to visit her obasan, that is her aunt, after her uncle, that is her obasan's husband, has died. The novel opens with a flashback in August 1972, with a visit by Naomi and her uncle to a shallow grassland ravine to which they return once every year around the same time. 
What you won't know until you read to the end of the novel, yes, this is a spoiler alert, is that her uncle returns to this part of the prairies each year to mark the anniversary of the dropping of an atomic bomb on Nagasaki on August 9, 1945. The return home in her present, that is, just after her uncle has died, involves a return in memory to her experiences growing up in B.C. during the Japanese-Canadian internment and a consideration of belonging. Who belongs? Who gets to belong? And why? These memories are largely fragmented and jumbled because she's a child to whom little information is given. That is, to some extent, the silences that Naomi encounters, which are meant to protect her, disorient her, but are also fundamentally damaging because they don't reveal the injustices suffered. And this is also how narratives about the Canadian sense of exceptionalism are easily produced. There was nothing immediate to counter them. So more about the notion of Canadian exceptionalism in the takeaway part of today's episode with my guest, Jennifer Andrews. Naomi does eventually put much of the story together, learning, as she does, what happened to her family in relation to Japanese internment camps. Another novel that takes up this kind of story is Francis Atani's Requiem, published by HarperCollins in 2011. This novel tells the story of Bin Okuma, a middle-aged Japanese-Canadian artist who undertakes a trip to reconcile, or perhaps reconcile, with his father, who gave him away to another man while they were living in an internment camp in B.C. The novel opens in 1997, five months after the sudden death of Bin's wife, Lena. After learning that his biological father is dying in British Columbia, Bin leaves his home in Ottawa on a spur-of-the-moment road trip, taking little but his art supplies, his classical music tapes, and his hound, Basil. The reader comes to learn that Bin was only a young boy when his family and others in the community were forced from their homes and relocated to the internment camps. In the camp, he encounters Okuma-san, a pianist who teaches him how art helps us to survive, to rise above pain through acts of creation, and how grappling with past traumas is necessary for healing to begin. The third novel, Kerry Sakamoto's 100 Million Hearts, was published in 2003. It also addresses the tensions produced by conflicting Japanese loyalties during the Second World War. The book's title takes up questions of divided loyalties, national and individual, public and private. It specifically refers to the thousand stitch belts that Japanese women made for the kamikaze when they were departing on their missions, and the hundred million hearts that ultimately belonged to Japan whom the kamikaze were defending. It's relevant because Miyomori, the protagonist, learns that her father, Maseo Mori, was a kamikaze, that is a pilot in the special attack forces of the Japanese Imperial Army. Her father tried to keep his past from his daughter, to shelter her from the potential for further injury. She had, in fact, sustained physical injuries that she feels self-conscious about. 
Some characters in the novel actually assume radiation is the cause, that is, from the bombing of Hiroshima. Yet even Mio herself is uncertain of their origin. Her failure to be curious about herself, her condition, and her father's past results in many unanswered questions. When her father dies, Mio begins to test the assumptions she made about herself, about her father, and about Tsutsuko, the woman whom she believed was a fleeting girlfriend in her father's life. In fact, she was a second wife who bore a child, Mio's half-sister Hana, who lives in Tokyo and whose resentment for being abandoned by their father is only rivaled by her desire to have been loved and accepted by him. Hannah's life is dedicated to performance art, to expressions of protest against the emperor, against the futility of war, against her own ultimate abandonment. What's at stake in these and other relationships in the novel are the beliefs, often mistaken, that characters hold about others and the way these beliefs are challenged and at times even undone. The last of the books for today's episode is Mark Sakamoto's Forgiveness, A Gift from My Grandparents. This is a memoir. It's a departure in genre from the other three books I've just discussed. And as is typical of memoir conventions, it has this uplifting ending. I appreciated this aspect of the memoir if I wasn't always enamored by its writing style. Its ethos, its emphasis on forgiveness is one of the reasons it was championed by Jeannie Becker and won the CBC's annual Canada Reads competition. Its narrative structure is based on the stories of his grandparents, Mutsuo Sakamoto, his father's mother, and Ralph McLean, his mother's father, both of whom suffered during the Second World War, though in radically different ways. His grandmother's story is all the more harrowing when we understand it's not a fictional account. She loses everything during the Japanese internment, including a life of culture and prosperity that her family had established. She ends up living in a chicken coop in southern Alberta, subject to extremes in climate and extremes of human judgment and cruelty. His grandfather, by contrast, signed up to serve in the Second World War when he was just a teenager, thinking it would be a glamorous endeavor. His assumptions are radically overturned when he's stationed with his peers in Hong Kong. When the Japanese forces attacked, the Canadians serving there were outnumbered, and the result is that McLean spends years as a Japanese prisoner of war. Some of the stories here are equally poignant. When he loses his best friend in the camp, for example, I actually had to set the book down for a few moments. The title of the book emerges from the fact that the son of Mitsuo Sakamoto and the daughter of Ralph McLean meet and fall in love. And in spite of the odds and the most polarized of stories, they marry and have two sons, one of these being Mark Sakamoto. It's a peculiar inversion of the Capulets and Montagues of Romeo and Juliet. Unbelievably, the two factions reconcile. It doesn't mean that everything is neatly resolved, however. His grandmother never returns to Vancouver as one example because of the traumatic memories that are the legacy of her history. The point of the memoir is that the grandparents find ways of forgiving, and they set an example. It's a template for Mark Sakamoto. 
They acknowledge their painful histories and move beyond them. They find ways of seeing people as individuals rather than making assumptions about who they are and what their personal stories might actually be. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Jennifer Andrews about her most recent book, Canada Through American Eyes, Literature of Canadian Exceptionalism, which was published in 2023 by Palgrave Macmillan. This is my interview with Jennifer Andrews. Hi, Jen. Welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. This is a huge pleasure for me, Linda. I'm so happy to be on this show, and I'm so happy to be talking to you today about exceptionalism, which is something that I find super exciting, both on the American and Canadian side. So I know you've got some things that you want to talk about with me, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, I want to talk to you about your book, first of all, because I know you have a whole book devoted to the subject. So perhaps you could tell listeners a little bit about this new book that's come out with Paul Grave. Okay, that's lovely. I always like to talk about my book. Um, the book's called Canada Through American Eyes, Literature and Canadian Exceptionalism. And Linda actually has read most, if not all of it, very thoroughly and has been one of my interlocutors um, throughout the time that I was writing it and thinking about it. We think of exceptionalism, at least historically, as being a term that was used mostly by American folks, Americans who saw themselves as creating this better nation. They left Britain, they fled to America, they created this exceptional country, this country that was like nothing else in the world. And what I do in my book is I actually take that narrative apart, or I would more say turn it on its head. What I do is I look at American literary and cultural depictions of Canada as a place of refuge for vulnerable populations, and as a place that Canadians want to see as exceptional. And so exceptionalism works in a couple of different ways. It's a little bit tricky to understand it. How so? How is it tricky? It's tricky because I think there's been a whole wave of different discussions about what U.S. exceptionalism looks like. The U.S. as a place that is better than the rest of the world, that can guide the rest of the world to be better. And there's been a lot of criticisms of that idea of U.S. exceptionalism, you know, that it is the greatest nation on earth in all kinds of ways. And one is a literary critic known as Inderpal Gruel, who actually argues that U.S. exceptionalism is really a claim to anti-colonial origins that erases viewing the United States as an empire. So exceptionalism is a way in which then someone looks at the U.S. and rather than thinking of it as a colonial state, as a colony that came into the new world and spread all over the U.S. and took over indigenous lands, in many cases jailed or put people into internment camps, did things to populations they see themselves American in within American exceptionalism. Americans see themselves as doing the right thing, right? They're creating a world that is more, they would argue, inclusive when it's not really very inclusive at all. So, would you say that engaging in these kinds of or distributing these kinds of narratives of exceptionalism are also a way of hiding the kind of violences? Yeah, for sure. Because what you're doing, and that's a great point, is what you're doing is saying, 
we are creating a nation that's going to be better than any other nation in the world. And in doing so, we are going to be inclusive and embracing of particular values. The catch is most of the time, at least with U.S. exceptionalism, and I would argue with Canadian exceptionalism, and I'll say a little bit about that in a second, most of the time the values are very specifically focused and benefit one or two particular populations. So, for example, you know, exceptionalism works for white men who have power and can acquire <laughs> land. <laughs> yeah, they have a they they have an and and can be really helpful. For example, when you're carrying out a war and you decide that you want to destroy the presence of a particular population in an area where historically that population, for example, an indigenous uh, population might have occupied it. It also relates, I think, in and one of the kind of most reviled, but also kind of shoved to the side or hidden ideas of exceptionalism is the fact that while the U.S. is considered to be one of the greatest nations in the world, it also has an extremely brutal history of racism, mm-hmm. right, and slavery around, for example, the the situation that Black slaves found themselves in until emancipation, and then the challenges that folks who were BIPOC, you know, Black, Indigenous, and of other populations, not white, found themselves into the 20th and 21st century, ending up in places like jails, where they're incarcerated. They may not be enslaved in a traditional sense, but they're incarcerated. All at the same time that the United States is saying, we are still the best nation in the world, and we know better than anyone else how to run countries and create opportunities for folks who come to our countries. So we've been talking about narratives of exceptionalism and how they apply in the United States, but that also applies to Canada. The whole episode was about mm-hmm. Japanese-Canadian internment. How does that work in Canada? We, I think we often think that it doesn't apply here. Yeah, and it's a very... You're- your point is well taken and a very important one, because I think the tendency in Canada is to blame the U.S. for the things that we see as not so good. And as a result, to create a kind of exceptionality or narrative of we are better than by saying we don't do the things that the U.S. has historically or in contemporary context done. So, for example, blocking migrants from moving yeah. across borders jailing children or separating families, um, children and and parents. There's a great book by Rachel Bryant. It's a book called The The Homing Place, which was published by Wilfrid Laurier Press in 2017. And she actually makes the argument that Canadian exceptionalism is very much like American exceptionalism. There's actually a lot of similarities. And it's existed since its time, since Canada was a British colony. And basically what it was, was Britain, this British colony, in order to differentiate itself from the US, created a nobler idea of what a Western nation can or should be. And in Canada's case, it becomes a willful separation from the United States. So what happens then is, of course, as uh, as the U.S. does things that we regard as particularly heinous or unkind, we then as Canadians feel very comfortable saying, 
we haven't done these things. These are not part of our history. Mm-hmm. We haven't treated people badly. We haven't relished people or relegated people to um, internment camps. And so the book that I wrote was in large part about saying, what do American authors say about this kind of belief system that Canadians put forward and kind of casually circulate it in everyday conversation? I mean, it's a it's an assumption that's happened for or presumption that's happened for hundreds of years. And yet we ourselves as Canadians don't really take a second look at it. And so your discussion of Obasan and looking at how Japanese Canadians were interned very similar. I actually have a section in my book where I look at an internment camp of Germans in Amherst, Nova Scotia, where people were basically put into internment camps because they could read German. They were fully integrated into the society. They were working, teaching, living, mm-hmm. in some cases for a hundred or more years in the community. But the minute that World War I happened, they were seen as enemies. And those stories, for the most part, have not been shared within traditional Canadian history books or traditional narratives of what happened in Canadian history. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, that's a great question. It's a bit of a mystery, but I don't, I don't think actually it's that much of a mystery. I think it's Canadians want to feel better about themselves. And the U.S. has this very strong narrative that is a rupture from the British through revolution and the creation of this new nation that is literally in the eyes of many, I would say religious folks at the time, like a city on a hill. It's it's like a, a, a place of you know biblical miracles. Yeah. And Canadians, they want to see themselves as better than the U.S. And one way to do that is to simply bury things that don't work or don't fit into the narrative. So the most obvious example, and this is the one that I actually spend quite a bit of time on later on in my book, is the Underground Railroad and the way in which, in fact, if you look statistically at where Black slaves ran, they didn't go north. Historically, there wasn't there was an underground railroad figurative. It's it's absolutely believed that they that they exactly. came north. Yeah. And you're and that's that's part of the problem is that there is this narrative that has dominated. And part of this is what has happened is history has been very careful to record the stories. And this is not an unusual assertion to make of the victors. Right. The people who won, the people who whose stories dominated. So. For example, we have relatively little, we do have some documents of slaves that were brought to Canada. And in fact, what's interesting too, was the idea was that because Britain had a quite early ban on slavery, that British North America would too. But in fact, there are lots of records of people bringing Black, enslaved Blacks to North America and to, in particular, Atlantic Canada mm-hmm. and keeping them enslaved. Mm-hmm. But this this isn't something that really is talked about because it's seen as a kind of t- a taboo subject. It's something that raises questions that might not otherwise be a pr- seen as appropriate for a nation that ha- it wants to present itself with a kind of virtuosity, yes. right? And that's part of what you're seeing is if if we think of Canada as kind the kinder, gentler nation, the peacekeeping nation, and those narratives circulate all the time in our 
newspapers Absolutely. where we are seen as you know we're we're pe the people who do the good things and help fight against the bad people or the bad bad regimes or bad governments and in doing so and it, this book for me was an eye opener because there were particularly actually the last section of the book deals with it's a musical called come from away very famous musical about <laughs> um who landed in gander uh mostly americans but people from all over the world who landed in gander during 9 11 and part of what i look at in that in that particular chapter is how we use canada as a space that we assert canadians assert is gun free has no guns never uses violence and in come from away which did fabulously on broadway that narrative was reiterated very clearly and then you can turn to something like the documentary we will stand up which was the account of the shooting of colton bushy colton bushy yes he was a cree he was a cree a cree man cree boy who was ex shot execution style in the back of the head because he was seen to be trespassing on a white farmer's lawn or property in Saskatchewan. And he was doing that. It was an accident that he ended up there. And rather than, as his mother talks about in the documentary, documentary, rather than waiting till the police arrived, the individual who shot him, Gerald Stanley, the farmer shot him and said, well, I was protecting my property. And, and to add to that, the third part in that chapter, which actually is really helpful, is uh, Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine, where he goes through different houses, visits different houses north of the Canada-US border in Windsor, and says, oh, nobody has a gun. My thought is, when, when you open, and the, the newspapers that we read in Canada, one of the main ones, I think, is the Globe and Mail, which is a national newspaper, you open the national newspaper, and there are shootings, and there are shootings all over Canada, and violence all over Canada, and particularly racially motivated hate. Mm -hmm. And so these kinds of assumptions that Canada doesn't have this, because of its multicultural, and that's the other, I think, term that kind of lingers. Yeah. yeah, it covers it up. It's like, we are multicultural, and we are accepting of diversity. Well, there's a big difference between accepting of diversity and actually engaging with and including yes. people in a community. Yes. And that doesn't happen. And so when you talk to folks who've, who are in Canada, who are, for example, BIPOC, and they note the ways in which they're treated, for example, when they go in to buy something in a store or when they're walking down the street at night and there's a police car nearby, you know, are they going to face a, a spot check? that's going to be racially motivated. Those kinds of things operate just as powerfully in Canada and perniciously. But with a kind of benign, and perniciously and destructively, but with a kind of benign veil covering. Yeah, 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 yeah. If there's one thing, let's let's give our listeners a takeaway. What's the one message yeah. you would want listeners to know about in relation to the book and in relation to narratives of exceptionalism? What's the one thing you would want them to take away today? I would caution folks who want to see Canada as a virtuous nation. And I would want to see, and this is probably more at academic audiences, but also readers, take a closer look when you're reading books about Canadian literature to be sure that you're getting a full 
view or vision of all of the kind of diversity that exists in Canada and the challenges and complications that come along with living in Canada as someone who may not be um, white, straight, Christian, um, privileged. Um, and there are some really wonderful books that tackle that. I mean, the one that comes to mind um, is uh, Robin Maynard's Policing Black, Black Lives, which is a phenomenal book about how slavery, the end of slavery, ostensibly becomes the kind of the beginning of a carceral state for Blacks in all kinds of contexts, right into present day Canada. And that our assumption that we are a better place to live is based on myth, mythology, and ideas that we don't actually spend a whole lot of time probing. So that it's worth it to go back and probe these ideas. And o Obasan is a wonderful place, I would argue, is a wonderful place to start because it's a book that foregrounds the ways in which history becomes, is erased, Right. And the need to pay attention to these voices that are reaching out, these incredible creative writers like Kagawa, who are reaching out and saying, pay attention, pay close attention to the story that I'm going to tell you, because it is a story that you you may not want to hear. But as Thomas King often says, a wonderful indigenous writer, you know, once you've heard it, you can't you can't look away. You become responsible once you've heard it. Mm -hmm. It may motivate you to act. It can be a simple act of kindness, uh, an act of awareness, maybe some kind of action in terms of social justice, but just thinking more carefully about how you interact with people on a daily basis and what you do as a result of those interactions. Linda, thanks for a great show. Every time I listen, I think this is my favorite <laughs> podcast. So. so sweet. Thank you so much. And again, that was my interview with Jennifer Andrews, whose book, Canada Through American Eyes, was published in 2023 by Palgrave Macmillan. As always, thanks for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.